0: Hello, I'm Rachel McTavish and welcome to episode four of AC Life, the podcast. Today we're discussing financial wellbeing. We'll be looking at what help is available through Arnold Clark and through Ben, the organisation which supports all of those working in the automotive industry. I'm also joined in the studio by our financial expert, Fergus Muirhead, who'll be answering specific questions that have been sent in from Arnold Clark staff around the country. Before we start looking at the questions that have been sent in, I'm pleased to welcome Claire France on the line, Head of Support Services at BEN, who's here to talk us through various lines of help available to staff. Claire, thanks very much for joining us. You must be noticing a huge difference in the number of people approaching BEN at the moment with the cost of living soaring. We really are.
1: um, I mean, firstly, thank you inviting me to join. I think it's a really key time to talk about Ben's services and how we can support people. Um, When we actually look at sort of finances, money is something that that everyone is worried around at the moment, Um, but with the cost of living increases at sort of the, the highest rate for the last 30 years, it's affecting more people than ever. Claire, what sort of help can Ben offer then? Ben can support people in a range of ways when we look at finances. At the moment, with the increased cost of living rising faster than it has been in the last 30 years, more and more people are reaching out to us and the support that we can offer is very much based on an individual basis. We can support with looking at benefits and making sure that people are getting everything that they're entitled to. Just last year alone, we supported people to secure over £180,000 worth of untapped benefits, so that's quite significant. But we can support people to look at their, their budgeting, to look at more sustainable budgeting, but also we can support people that are struggling to meet the cost of living. We are seeing more and more people now that are reaching out to us because they are having to make the choice between heating, eating paying essential bills so there are the uh, some of the areas that we can support with
0: and i think it's important to emphasize the fact that this is not through anybody's own fault these are uh, the majority of these are working people from the automotive industry and it is an economic crisis not through anything that they've actually done
1: differently Absolutely. In our recent health and well-being survey, we actually found that one in five automotive people are struggling to keep up with the cost of living, such as energy, petrol, food, mm-hmm. um, which is very much in line with the the current statistics that one in five working households is now at risk of fuel and food poverty. So, you know, this isn't something that that people are choosing. This is just the, the current economy.
0: So also the, the local benefits that you can you can tap into. Although you are a national organization, you do actually have specific knowledge about what's available in different areas
1: of the country. Absolutely, because the the benefit systems are very different across england and scotland so all of our case managers will actually go through the different areas find out as much information and support people based on their location and their needs
0: so some people listening to this may be in a really desperate situation um ben has also um handed out financial help as well haven't they
1: yeah it's something that we do i mean just in the last year alone, we have supported over 180 Arnold-Clark um, colleagues in a varied range of ways. And over half of these have been around their financial circumstances.
0: So let's let's talk people through how they actually access the help available then. How do they get in touch with you?
1: So there's a range of ways to reach out to Ben. Um, you can contact us on our helpline, which is 080. 080- 8131333 1 1 3 3 3 3. and that is staffed from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. You can go online onto our website and you can web chat with our helpline advisors. You can request a callback um at a time that is most convenient to you. Or you can actually speak to one of your leads, one of your supervisors, someone from HR. Then that case would be allocated straight out to our case management team who would contact you. They will do a full assessment where they explore all different areas of your life to look at what support they can put in place. Everything that we do is individual and holistic, and based on the circumstances that an individual is facing.
0: And you don't just make contact with somebody once, do you? It is a journey.
1: Yeah, it is a journey. We always approach it from that stance. Some people will just need some information. Other people, we will support them over a period of time that works for them.
0: Claire France from Ben, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Right, time to welcome our second guest here in the studio, money expert Fergus Muirhead. Now, you might have seen and heard Fergus giving out advice on the BBC, STV, Sky, various newspapers and magazines. Well, today, he's here to look through some of the specific questions that you've been sending in, and we'll try and get through as many of them as possible, but we have a feeling that this podcast might be a two-parter. Fergus, thanks very much for coming in. Let's crack on. Right, our first question has come in. I'm looking for tips or hints on car insurance for an 18-year-old. Having just paid to get my son through his driving lessons and tests, which we know is incredibly expensive, we now also have the high expense of adding him to the insurance of my husband's car. He's saving for his own car, but whilst he's still at college, this might may take a while. We can't have a black box fitted as my husband works unsociable hours and shifts. We've investigated this, but his shifts would negatively impact the insurance. Any advice on helping keep insurance costs down?
2: Yeah, um, insurance is a huge issue at the moment, and, and I think it's it's fair to say that all insurance is based on risk, um, and, and there's just no question that, that the younger a driver is, the, the, the riskier they are for insurance companies because the statistics all show that they're more likely to, to be involved in accidents and to cause accidents than, than older drivers who have experience. Um, so it's it's all about it's all about how do how how do we get insurers to know about the sun as soon as possible. Um, It's better if he can be a named driver on on the husband's policy, rather than just an any driver policy, because that way the insu- that way he can start to build up some level of no claims discount in his own name. If he's named on uh, on on a, on a policy, um, th- you can go to another insurance company and say, look, he's he's been named on this policy for a year. There's been no claims on this policy, therefore he's got a year of claim free driving. If it's an any driver policy, it's not as easy to to, to show that that the son has been driving the policy. So that that that's a useful just get them named um, on, on, on a policy as soon as possible. Um, it's also fair to say that when it comes to looking for insurance, um, when, when, when our son buys a car, that cheap is not the same as good value. We've become very very driven by this this idea of comparison sites for insurance, not not just for car insurance, but for house insurance and for all sorts of insurance over the last few years. And everything is price driven. We need to look for the cheapest policy that we can find. But sometimes cheap doesn't equate to good value. Uh, And and sometimes, for example, you can find a cheap policy that's got a huge compulsory excess on young drivers. So so if if we've got an 18-year-old driver on a policy, we might have a policy that's 100 pounds cheaper than the the next um, cheapest but it's got an excess that's 500 pounds more expensive. So make sure that if you're looking at a comparison website before you buy a policy, you've got a policy that is not only good value for money, but covers all the things you want it to cover. And excess is important because lots of policies have two different excesses. They've got a compulsory excess and they've got a voluntary excess. And and the the compulsory excess is just there as part of the policy and, and you can't remove it but you can add a voluntary excess to a policy that means that you're responsible for the first part of any claim and if you add a voluntary excess to the to the cost of the pol- to the policy then it will reduce the premium but it means that you're adding to the the, the part that you have to pay if there's an accident. So if there's a 500 pound voluntary excess, but there's also a 500 pound compulsory excess for young drivers, then suddenly you're responsible for the first thousand pounds of any claim. So be aware of any excess that's involved. So get a policy with her son's name on it as soon as possible uh, and, and make sure you're aware of any excess that's involved in the policy and also make sure that when you're looking for new car insurance policies, you've got one that's good value as well as competitively priced.
0: Um, This is the only question I've actually been able to help out with some (laughs) of the answer on Fergus, because I'm in a very similar situation as this lady. I've got twin boys who are just starting to learn to drive and I've picked up various bits of advice from other parents who've been looking. Um, Not all black box insurance companies are the same. Black boxes that sometimes known as telematics, there's various ways of doing things Um, Okay, black box fitted in the car. Others have a FOB system that then monitor just that person driving through hooking up their Bluetooth on a mobile phone. Um, Obviously, you mentioned the curfew as being important. Having investigated this, this is a big thing, but a few have specified that they don't pay attention to the actual times of day that your child is driving, rather the safety aspect. And some good companies to look at are Marmalade, which are aimed specifically at new young drivers, no curfew or time restriction and um, also Hastings Direct and noboxinsurance.co.uk. Obviously, these are just to be investigated, but these are all ones that say no curfew. Um, Word of caution, whilst we're talking about black boxes, uh, black box jammers, kids will be listening. Oh, they're easily available and get black box jammed. They are illegal. The, The black box still knows the car is moving and you risk fines or an outright ban if you even think about going down that road. Our next question is from Mary MacDonald at Perth Citroen. My son is turning 18 soon. Years ago, when I was 18, we were advised to get a credit card to get a credit score. Having seen some of my friends at that time abuse the credit cards and have to dig them out of the credit hole over several years, is this still relevant advice?
2: Yes, I think it is. Um, and I think I think it's a huge area. I think it's really important that, that we teach our children as much as we can um, about money as soon as we can. Um, proud parent thing. You were just talking there about you know your children getting their, and, and their cars and their first car insurance. My son bought a house last year, um, and, and I was I was amazed when both the solicitor that helped him and the mortgage broker that helped him phoned me and said, your son sent us everything that we asked him to send him. Uh, to send us as soon as we asked them for it and it was all completed properly. Now, I think that's great. Um, it, it wasn't me necessarily that taught them that, I've just got a son who's, who's organised when it comes to money matters. But it's really important that, that we teach our children as much as we can about money as soon as we can. Um, because as soon as they get to the age of being able to open bank accounts in their own name and have credit cards in their own name, it's important that they understand the ramifications of taking on credit, APR for example, um, I'm involved in a huge argument at the moment with with a company about a credit agreement that that one of the readers of one of the papers I write for doesn't understand, and I don't understand it. So I wrote to um, I wrote to the company and I said, "Can you explain what you mean by APR?" And, and this very patronising lawyer from the compliance department of this organisation phoned me and said, "I could send you the formula that we use, but you wouldn't understand it." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, try me, send it to me. And she was right, I didn't understand it. But I don't know how anybody understands it because it's just nonsense, it's gobbledygook. But it's about APR, which is the annual percentage rate, which is the cost of borrowing money, which anyone who enters into a consumer a, a consumer credit agreement needs to understand. And, and it's part of a credit card as well, because if you take out a credit card, then if you borrow money on that credit card, there is a cost to that borrowing and you need to understand what that cost is. Therefore, you need to know what APR is. So we need to be teaching our children about these things as soon as possible. And if it was up to me, it would be an integral part of every school curriculum from a very early age. Uh, So the answer to the question is yes. Um, get them, you know, get them a credit card as soon as possible. Get them to understand what credit cards are, how credit cards operate, how bank accounts operate, how interest operates, how AP- what APR is, how, what what are the the repercussions of borrowing money, what are the ramifications if you borrow money and then can't afford to make the repayments on the borrowings that you've made. All these things are really important, and the sooner. Um, the, the sooner our children understand these things, the 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 more comfortable they will be, and the more confident they will be with money. And that's a really important thing. So much of the, so many of the issues that that, that I come across when I'm dealing with people about money at the moment. Um, are down to a lack of understanding um, of some of the issues that are involved, and, and, and the sooner the sooner we can teach people about about interest rates, about mortgages, about savings, all these things. The sooner we can do that, the, 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 you know, the, the better equipped they will be when it comes to to doing these things themselves.
0: So yes, it needs to build up a credit score, but just make sure that there's that full understanding of what you borrow needs to be paid the, the, the back. Credit, yeah. The credit
2: score is really important because the credit score. Is, is one of these things that is used to determine whether companies will, will give people credit or not, um, or, or will let people borrow. Um, and whether that's for a mortgage or for a car loan or, or for a personal loan, whatever it is that you want to borrow money for, the decision on whether a lender will give you that money and what rate they will charge you for that, that, that money is, is often down to the credit score. So the credit score is a really important thing so it's important that people have got a good a good credit score as, as soon as possible. And it used to be the case, it's not quite as important now, but a few years ago, it used to be the case that, that if you opened a bank account and didn't really use it, then at least you had a bank account if you had a credit card in your name and you used it every so often then you had you know you, you you were showing that you could that you could borrow money and pay it back sensibly so as soon as you're able to start doing that then the sooner you're able to build a credit score and the sooner the companies are able to look at your credit history and say this person looks as if they know what they're doing. They've borrowed money in the past and they've paid it back responsibly. So that's all really good. But it's important if you are doing that, that you understand that you need to make sure that all the information that's on your credit score is accurate. So there's no harm There's no harm looking at Experian or Equifax every so often and just looking at your credit history and, and making sure that all the information that's on that is accurate. And if you notice anything that's different and, and, and or that's wrong, and that could be perhaps because Two or three people share a house or, you know if, if we're looking at young people that are students or, or that are sharing properties then quite often three or four people might have a credit score that's based at the same address
0: Ah, um, right. And, yeah. and, and
2: you need to make sure that any information that relates to that address relates to your information and not somebody else's information Yeah, because you
0: don't want to be tackling issues on your credit score when you're up against it with having to get paperwork in yep. for something
2: important likewise if you've been in a relationship Um, and and that relationship no longer exists, then you might find that your partner's credit score gets mixed up with yours Mm -hmm. and and there could be misinformation on a credit record. So make sure that if you do have a credit history, you're checking it every so often to make sure the information is on it is actually up to date and and valid and accurate. And if it's not accurate, you do have the facility and the ability to go in and, and, and correct information that's incorrect.
0: Right we're um we're staying with Perth Citroen. they've been very good at getting in touch with questions Samantha Lamont um with the cost of living increasing are there any grants or funding to replace um to replace these uh, uh for an alternative heating source uh, preferable something that would heat my home but still be affordable as i'm currently she's not turning on um various heating um things that she's got at the moment um she's using an oil heater in the room that she's actually inhabiting.
2: And yeah, yeah th- th- there, are, there are grants and there are things that are available to either, ch- to, help with, to, to help with the cost of heating. You know, I think every household was supposed to get something like 400 pounds from the government over the next six months. Make sure that that is happening. Make sure that if you're entitled to that help, that you're getting that help. Make sure that you're entitled to all the benefits that, that, that you should be claiming if you're entitled to benefits. Um, and, and there are certain helps that are available if you need to replace certain aspects of your, your heating system, whether it's a boiler or whatever. Um, so again, it's about going online and just checking that without having more information about, about you know, specific details, it's difficult to know whether specific individuals yes. can benefit from help. Well, I but, think
0: this is where Ben could probably help because as, as we were hearing from Claire France, they have Really up to date information that's specific to certain regions. And that um, if they're given a task like that, Samantha, I would get in touch with Ben. Either approach them yourself or through your line manager, and they will be able to target specifically any grants that are available to you. Um,
2: and also, there are some really good websites available that I've got some really good information about what what help is available, what you know, what benefits are available, what helps available with the new heat, heating systems. So make sure you're checking all that out as well.
0: Right. Um, Lorraine Williamson has um, got in touch is it really worth increasing your percentage of pension contributions now or would you be better just to save the money into a cash ISA?
2: Really good question and and we could spend the rest of the day discussing (laughs) the benefits of that question because it raises raises a few different points. Um, the, the, The benefits of paying money into a pension as opposed to an ISA are all to do with tax. If you If you pay money into a pension, then you will get tax relief on the money that you pay into the pension. So if you're a basic rate taxpayer, every £100 that you pay into a pension will cost you roughly £80 because if you pay tax at 20%, you'll get that £20 back. If you're a higher rate taxpayer, then every £100 that you pay into your pension will cost you £60. So it's a very tax efficient way to save money. Um, it's not actually 20 and 60. It's, it's probably it's probably more than, slightly more than that because it's right. 21 and 41% tax rates. But very roughly, uh-huh. um, so it's, it's a very tax-efficient way of of investing money. But of course, the downside of paying money into a pension is is that if you're very young, you can't access the money. Current under current legislation, until you're fifty-five. Uh, under proposed legislation, until you're maybe fifty-seven or fifty-eight, and depending on how young you are, it might be it might be sixty, depending on how things change. So, if you're putting money into a pension, you have to make sure that it's money that you're not going to need until you get to that age.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: If you pay money into an ISA, you get no tax relief on the money that you pay into the ISA, but you can take it back out tomorrow. So. It's, it's a very different tax regime between pensions and ISAs. ISAs are about the short term because you can take the money back out again tomorrow. Pensions are very much about the long term because you're saving for something that you can't access until you get to retirement age.
0: So it depends what sort of stage um, Samantha is at her life. if she's going to need to do some major purchases and perhaps pull on that money, perhaps...
2: Yes, it also yeah. de- it also depends on, on on her current pension situation and and what what provision she's wow. making elsewhere into her pension and how much money she's got in her pension, um, and, and that requires just having a look at the current you know how how old is Samantha what what. How much money is in her pension at the moment, how much is she paying in both contributions from her and her employer Um, and and, and what access is she she likely to need to that money in the the, the kind of short and medium term. It also raises a really, another really important question which I think we might touch on in more detail later on, But, but she talks about, Samantha talks about paying money into a pension rather than a cash ISA. Now most pensions are invested in the stock market, cash ISAs are invested in cash So we're not comparing apples with apples here. Stock market investment and cash investment are two completely different things. Um, And it's also worth saying that when it comes to tax again, when you take money out of an ISA, you don't pay tax on it. But when you take money out of a pension, you pay tax on most of it under current legislation. So while while pensions are very tax advantageous in the way in, there's generally tax to be paid. On the way back out.
0: Right, and um, also we should mention at this point that um, Craig Ramage is Arnold Clark's pension specialist. I think Craig's going to be inundated <laughs> at the end of this. But anyway, um, there are, there are pension specialists within Arnold Clark if you need to look at your specific figures. Right. We've got uh, Damian Gardner from um, Preston Motor Store who's emailed in um, to ask for a subject for a podcast if possible. I was looking for investment tips in the stock markets if there's any individual stocks or companies to look out for that are due to um, or have recently IPO or any good long term investment opportunities. Um, uh, so this is this is I think it's a general question that people they think oh perhaps I want to I want to do some investing are there any surefire bets
2: no um, no, no there are not and even if there were uh, sorry Damien I, I'm not going to sit here and give you <laughs> tips on, on on specific companies but, but one because if I'm wrong uh, you might come looking for me if, if, if you lose a lot of money I'll give you an example um, I saw some, um, some stuff in, in the weekend uh, Money Pages the Weekend Papers a couple of weeks ago that said, uh, and I won't mention the company's name, but said this particular company is a really good deal, uh, they're doing really well, the particular market they're involved in is, is a good market, it's on the up, you should buy their shares. So I bought some of their shares and I didn't realise that the results were coming out later that day and the Uh results were a nightmare and their shares dropped 30% by the end of the day. So for every 100 pound that I spent, I lost 30 pound of it. Um, So that's one of the reasons I'm not going to sit and give Damien advice on individual shares Today. Um, there's a very interesting thing. If you look at the difference between invest and gamble, the, diffi- the definition of invest and the definition of gamble, uh, there's not a lot of difference in the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, and, and, and investment runs on a scale of one to 10, where one is under the pillow and 10 is the 238 Newmarket. Um, <laughs> and, and, and some people are only comfortable when their money's under the pillow. Whereas other people are very comfortable yeah. putting all, all their money on the two thirty uh, new market, and it really is horses for courses if that's not a bad terrible pun. Uh, it really is down to people saying how much can I afford to lose the money that I'm going to put in that I'm going to invest in that share. And if you can afford to lose it all, then that's fine. But if you can't afford to lose any of it, then maybe you shouldn't be buying shares in the first place. Maybe a gentler way a, a gentler way to get into the stock market, rather than buying individual shares, might be to buy some sort of unit trust or some sort of investment trust, either directly or through an ISA. We talked a minute ago about cash ISAs. The alternative to buying cash ISAs is to buy stocks and shares ISAs. It still has the same tax benefits in that once it's in an ISA, there's no tax to pay on any of the gains that you make. But rather than leaving the money sitting in cash within the ISA, you can use it to buy stocks and shares, either individual stocks and shares, or through um, a, a kind of unit trust, which is basically a basket of stocks and shares where you buy a, you buy a fund and you allow the fund manager to choose what stocks and shares he or she is gonna buy within that fund. So you're actually taking the investment decision away from you and you're not buying individual stocks and shares, but you're diversifying what you've got because rather than you buying one share for a thousand pounds, you might put a thousand pounds into an investment trust or a unit trust and that unit trust might hold a thousand shares, but you're buying a share of each of these a thousand shares. So that means there's much less risk involved and that's quite often a kind of gentler way into the market. Um, so I, th- I think for someone that's new to investment, that might be a good way to look at it. I know lots of people who, who knew nothing about investment when they f- first spoke to me years ago and who now actually quite enjoy going in and buying individual stocks and shares because they've read about it and learned about it. And quite often it is an interesting subject and quite often people quite enjoy the idea of saying, I've got a little bit of money here that I am going to put into an individual stock or, or share or, or unit trust. And it can be an interesting thing to do, but you need to understand the risks involved. And, and, and the risks are that if you leave £100 in cash, then next year you'll still have £100 there. If you put £100 into the stock market, tomorrow you could have nothing. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow you could have £200, but tomorrow you could have nothing. And, and stock market investment, individual stock market investment, is all is all about risk and time frame. If you want the money back tomorrow, don't invest it in the stock market if you still want to have the same amount there tomorrow as you've got today. If you don't need the money for 10 years, it's a different question. If you don't need the money for 10 years and you put £100 into the stock market tomorrow or today, where it is tomorrow doesn't really matter. It's where it is in 10 years yeah. that matters. And, and, and the gradual move in the stock market is upwards. Which is why time frame is important. If you don't need money for ten years, then invest it in the market and just, but, the, but don't look at it every day. Could you get <laughs> really you'll worried? Drive yourself <laughs> right? mad. Yes. Yeah. You know, have yep. a look at it every six months or so. Um, sorry, I, and 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 you know, just to, to just to say, finally to Damien, it can be a fascinating thing. Lots of people make lots of money investing in the stock market, but lots of people also lose lots of money. Yeah. So be aware of what you're doing before you you, you dip into the market.
0: Right, Uh, our next question is from um, Alex Hamilton. I, like many other Arnold Clark employees, have come from other garages and I've been thinking about over the last few months uh, my pension, or shall I say, pensions. As I've been in various garages over a 30 year career, I've paid into quite a few different pension companies. So now I'm thinking that the money I've got in various pensions will probably be better off invested in my current pension. Thing is, will it be better? How do I go about getting them all amalgamated into my current pension? I see warnings all over TV, the internet, etc., saying people are being scared. Scammed out of pension money. He, he, I mean, he is being very cautious here. Who can who can we trust? Is there maybe something that Arnold Clark can help us with? Well, I had mentioned that Craig Ramage is the person in, within the company for pensions advice, but um, pension consolidation,
2: Fergus. Pension consolidation is a huge area, um, and it is one that is exercise in lots of people's minds because as the, as the question says here, that, that there are lots of people now that, that have got various jobs or had have had various jobs through, through their career. I mean 40 years ago people used to start work for one company and work in that same company for 30 or 40 years and therefore have one pension. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays that's not happening, people are regularly having seven or eight, even nine or ten pensions throughout their working life. Um, and quite often people forget about what's in each pension and, and and they couldn't even tell you what pensions they've got and what they don't have. but there can quite often be tens or even hundreds of thousands of pounds in these pensions so it's really important to keep track of them and if you've lost track of them to go back and, and, and get a get you know get a grip on the pensions and what's there and, and how much they're worth. There are two different types of pensions and it's really important to point this out first of all there are two different types of, of pensions that, that, that you could have. There are final salary pensions, what they call defined benefit pensions, and then there are personal pensions, money purchase type arrangements. And and the fundamental difference is that if you've got a final salary pension, you've got a pension that's generally based on the length of time that you worked with a company and the salary that you had when you left, and you've got a guaranteed benefit. Mm -hmm. So if you spent 10 years working for a company and and you're left with a salary of 20,000 pounds, then your salary will be a percentage of that £20,000. And and when you start to take that benefit, that, that pension every year will generally increase in line with some measure of inflation. So there's a guaranteed benefit and it's a very valuable pension to have. There are very few of them left anymore and they tend to be in the public sector but people who are maybe in their 40s or 50s might have a few of these pensions from you know from previous employments. Uh, and it's worth looking at how what these pensions are worth now. The general advice that you'll get if you go and speak to a financial advisor about these types of pensions will be to leave them where they are unless there's a compelling reason to move them. And there can be compelling reason, reasons to move them, but the question there talked about scams and, and there was a very um, very specific case in, in, in South Wales a couple of years ago where lots of, um, l- lots of steel workers in South Wales were advised to come out of final salary pension schemes that they had against their best interest because they didn't really understand what it was they were doing uh, and it was a scam. Um, and and the Financial Conduct Authority had to insist that the the companies involved made reparations to, to the individuals that had lost money out of it. So you need to be very careful if it's a final salary type pension scheme that you want to come out of. And as I say, the general advice would be not to come out unless there are compelling reasons. The other type of pension is what's known as a money purchase scheme or a personal pension. And that's where money's paid in every month by you... And by your employer and and, and that money is invested in a fund of some sort and the fund either grows or falls in value depending on how investment markets are going and when you get to retirement age you've got a chunk of money that's sitting in that pension fund and and, and you you can pull out of it money that you need to pull out of it when you retire or you can take that money give it to an insurance company and say give me an income for the rest of my life and that's what's known as an There's much more flexibility in the way that you can take benefits from these types of pensions, but there's not the same guarantees as there are with final salary schemes. So that's the two types of pensions that people are likely to have. Um, And as I say, lots of people are likely to have four or five or five or six of these pensions, and they may well be a mix of both types. Uh, it's really important that people understand how much is in their pensions, what they're worth and what options they've got with them. And, and, and to my mind, the best way to deal with that would be to sit down with someone who's a properly qualified financial advisor um, and, and get them to, to look at all the pensions and, and, and give you some sensible advice on whether they think you should move them or leave them where they are.
0: Right. I think we've got. although we've got several more questions, as I said, I think this is going to turn into a two-parter. So one, one last question, question and i'm going to sub this down because we've been given somebody owen bailey's very specific case here um but it boils down to the fact he's he's outlined what's happening with him but is it better to overpay
2: into a mortgage or a pension depends is is the answer um depends on Let's look at it from a financial point of view and then let's look at it from a psychological right. point of view. Um, if you've got a mortgage that is, co- from a financial point of view, first of all, if you've got a mortgage that is costing you 5% a year because mm-hmm. that's the rate of interest on the mortgage and if, you've got a, if you can pay money into a pension that you think will return you 3% a year, then you should pay off your mortgage because you're paying a, you're, you're paying off a mortgage that's costing you 5% rather than investing you somewhere that will give you 3%. If it's the other way around, if your mortgage is costing you 3%, but you think you can generate 5% by paying money into your pension, then it would make sense to keep the mortgage and pay money into your pension. Well,
0: the the question here is, um, he's three and a half years into a five-year fixed mortgage, so we'll need to remortgage in about 18 months' time. He's currently been overpaying his mortgage, but he's tempted to halt um, his pension contributions to get close to the ten percent limit to overpay on mortgage contributions, but it's all because it's building up to this having to remortgage in 18 months. Yeah, time. but that, that
2: doesn't that doesn't affect the basic principle of what I said a minute ago, which is it's down to expected returns from the pension right. as opposed to the, the cost of the the the, the mortgage. What you've just added there it gives it a different perspective in the sense that, that be, if he's got a fixed rate mortgage, there'll be a limit on how much he can overpay. Mm. And if that yeah. is 10%, then, then that is fine. And his thinking is probably the more I overpay just now, the less I will have to remortgage in 18 months time. And given that the expected the expected direction of mortgage rates over yes. the next 18 months is upwards, the, 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 the less he can have as a mortgage in 18 months time, the better it will be for him. So I get but we're still but 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 st- that's still an extrapolation of the same question, which is in eighteen months' time will the cost of his mortgage be higher or lower, the expected cost of his mortgage be higher or lower mm. than the expected return from his pension? Yeah, yeah, if you add into that mix that there's a lot of people who psychologically just don't like having debt and 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 therefore, regardless of the answer to the first part of the question, regardless want to pay just want to pay off, to pay off yeah. the mortgage. so even even if I sat and said to them, you can get a 10% return from your pension, it's guaranteed, and you're only paying 3% for your mortgage, their answer will still be, I'll pay off my mortgage because yeah. I don't want debt. And that, that's a valid answer. So there's, no, there's very much no right or wrong answer to Owen's question. It's all about, first of all, is he comfortable having a mortgage? If it was me, because I understand, and I'm not being patronising saying this, no. because I understand money, I'm quite happy to take risk. And if I thought I would get a better return here, than I would pay there, i, I would I would keep the mortgage and invest the money elsewhere. but not everyone thinks yeah. like that from our you know, back to what I said a minute ago about risk, how comfortable are you with the risk versus reward? If you're not a risk taker and you don't like the idea of having debt, then repay the mortgage. I, I would also just as a caveat, I would make sure that Owen needs to understand um the the the, the, the repayment rules. Uh, of his existing fixed rate mortgage because there might be a 10% rule, but you need to just be aware of whether that 10% is over a calendar year or January to December and just make sure that he's not breaching the rules because there can be fairly severe penalties for breaching the overpayment rules with a fixed rate mortgage and make sure that he doesn't he doesn't do that. So if he's keen on repaying, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm saying it's down to how he feels about debt, mm. um, but make sure that he's not breaching r- the rules and, and make sure that his, his payments are within the 10% limit.
0: Fergus. Thank you very much. I I get the feeling we've only scratched the surface of the financial topics today and we have got more questions that are to be answered. Um, But I think there might be another financial podcast coming up very soon. Just a reminder that if we've touched on issues today that have affected you, then on Space, you can find out how to access AXA. And Ben, they both offer counselling services as well as practical financial advice. There's also Silver Cloud, uh, the digital mental health platform that you can work through at your own pace and life coaching from Ben if you'd like some one-to-one support. Um, you can also reach out to the people teams to support. As we've mentioned earlier, the company are launching a healthy finance section of space within Ace, and that'll be the online hub for all of the existing and some new finance content as well that's coming. Well, thanks very much for listening. Thanks again uh, to Claire France from Ben and Fergus Muirhead. Until next time on AC Life, the podcast, goodbye.